it's not, you know, to increase employee engagement. It's not to be the number one, you know, HR firm in the nation. It's none of those things. It's just creating happier workplaces, period. If you are a leader of a team, you know how important it is to keep your employees engaged. Katrina Gazarian, CEO of Game Day HR and a passionate advocate for employee engagement, joins us today to uncover solutions on how to tackle employee disengagement and what strategies to have in place to ensure they don't become disengaged to begin with. Let's dive in. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Leaders Playbook. I am Avita Santablian. Today, I have one of my absolute favorite guests. I was a guest on her podcast, learned a ton, and I asked her to come on and do my podcast. This is Katrina Gazarian. Welcome. Thank you. It's actually 1.35 p.m., which means it's not morning. Ooh. Well, I'm in a different part of the world, so it's it's morning. No, you're not. You're like in L.A. Yes, I am. Well, it's a different part of L.A., so it's very different. Whatever works for you. Yeah. Well, welcome, <laughs> Katrina. Thank you. Let's jump into your awesome story, which you think is boring, which I don't think is boring. So can you tell us how you got to this point where you're mentoring and guiding all kinds of different companies on culture and, and all this, but how did you get to this world? I know you're a big NBA fan. I know you were a, a coach. And so how did the worlds collide and how did you get here? Yeah, I, you know, my dream was always to work in professional sports. And so I started coaching at the high school level, um, high school girls basketball, and then I got recruited to be a basketball official. And I ended up being a little bit better at that than I was at, at coaching. Um, and I got hired into the college conferences after my first year as a basketball official. Really? Like a referee? Yeah, I was a referee. I mean, when people ask me, how do I feel about not being liked? Like, it's no problem. I was a referee. <laughs> One of the most hated people in sports. So I was doing that for a while. And then I had my daughter. And at some point, I think I realized I needed to get a real job that paid better and had benefits. And so I ended up getting a position as a third party recruiter um, for Robert Half. And I did really well. I think that a lot of those skills had transferred over into recruiting just the capability of building a team and understanding personalities and team fit. And I, I had a client who I was just crushing it with. And at some point they coached me and invited me to work for them exclusively. They had a portfolio of businesses at the time that were, you know, growing at a really fast rate and so I became their dedicated recruiter. I think a natural progression for recruiting is to dive into the HR realm, um, understanding documentation and employee performance. Um, I didn't really have any hard set of HR skills or knowledge or experience at the time, but you know, in hindsight, I can understand now why I did well was because I just really loved people and I loved getting to know people and understanding what makes them happy, what makes them, you know, triggered, what motivates them. And so that was something I just really dove into while the other, you know, compliance aspects of HR was, you know, I can Google how to do that or call someone on how to do that. And so I really enjoyed my position. I think, I always pushed back on the motto that you can't be liked and respected. And I really sought out to be respected and really be likable. And so I think HR historically had a reputation of, you know, you can't be friends with anyone. You're pretty isolated. And I really wanted to turn that on its head and figure out, you know, how can I be friends with every single person here and help every single person realize, you know, their not just their professional goals, but their personal development as well and help them create a life that they really love. And that was something that I continued doing. And at some point, you know, my daughter was young. She was two. I was a single mom and I, I really needed flexibility in my schedule and remote work was not a thing at the time yet. And so um, when my employer at the time didn't feel comfortable allowing me to leave earlier, kind of have a more flexible schedule. I ended up just giving my 30 days notice and, um, 
the the Armenian hustle in me was like, I can just go build a business in 30 days. And so my last week there, I, you know, I had the audacity to pitch them my services. <laughs> um, and I did a whole cost analysis of how much they would save by just working with me and, you know, as a contractor rather than an employee. And they ended up accepting uh, my engagement. And till this day, yeah, they're still my clients. Um, and so that's really how I got into HR and um, have all of these ideas about how we can make HR better and, and really change the way the world thinks about HR. Katrina, you had, uh, thank you for your story. You had this uh, interesting podcast name for a while. I think you changed it. It was HR Sucks Podcast. Very clever. Why did you pick that name? And uh, why did you think HR sucked? In what areas did HR sucked that, that I know you, you did it very differently? Yeah, I, HR sucks was the name of the podcast. I think that was the season you were on. Um, yes. And outside of like probably not being hugged enough as a child and just trying to do anything for attention, I would say <laughs> from a strategic perspective it was just something I kept hearing all of the time from CEOs or founders or executive leadership who I'm having conversations with it was like oh HR like and I realized HR sucks um, nobody really likes to do it uh, and so I I really just wanted to get everyone's attention because I knew HR sucks was so relatable um, and HR sucks. The name was such an antithesis of what HR, like the sterile HR kind of reputation has been over the last couple of decades. And, you know, I, I succeeded in getting that attention. It was a really successful, you know, first season. I mean, for it being low quality and it, during the pandemic, I think we had 2 million impressions on that season. Wow. That's incredible. Do you think it had a lot to do with me being on the show for, for that one episode? I think your episode was one of the most downloaded episodes. You had Michael Cooper on. I know. I think it was because I think just higher clout, it's reputation in and of itself. I think people are attracted to higher clout. And so the fact that you, you know, marketed it, I think we got a lot of people in just because they saw you on there and they wanted to hear from That's you. Awesome. So I actually can't take credit for that episode d doing so well. It's all you. It's always <laughs> you. And I literally didn't know I was just being a smart ass as always, but that's really great to hear. So how do you go from being a referee to HR? I mean, you explained the, the thing, but it's like one hated, uh, but needed, uh, profession to another hated but very needed profession, which I'm sure you make a lot more fun and, and less hated. But how did you do that? Why, what's the relevance there? I think I think the common thing is definitely like enforcement of rules, I would say. But, you know, even as a basketball official, I did not really have kind of your typical personality or approach to the game. I mean, I understood what my values were and upholding the integrity of the sport, I think was always important to me, but also being honest in helping coaches, not so much parents. I, I ignored parents for the most part, um, but mostly coaches and players and helping them understand a, like what level they're at. So for like 10 year olds, you're not going to get the most highest quality officials working those games because the pay is really low so I really was honest about it. My values were, look, we're going to be respectful here no matter what. You know, you can have your emotions, but if you start to be demonstrative, we're going to have conversation about that. And I would put my ego aside and look, if I missed a call, I'd be the first one to admit it. You know, if what if you miss like 14 calls in a row Would that if I miss 14 calls in a row, that tells me that the industry as a whole has a problem. Um, the fact that they're Oof. putting, you know, officials who can't call a game, um, even in a, at a mediocre level is like a whole other issue. And, and as much as we like to blame the officials, I think the system in and of itself needs to be disrupted, you know, and I can personally tell you this as an official, um, and, and that experience as a, as a female official with a child, which was made me like very rare in the industry period. So, so not just being a woman, 
not just being a heterosexual woman also, which was, you know, not as common in the officiating world, but then also being a mother and being my age, there was, there were a lot of things that were kind of up against me, um, in that industry. And a lot of the things that I experienced, which inevitably led, you know, led to me leaving officiating, um, because of the politics. And so I think I was, I, I carried that over into the HR space and an, an employee um, engagement and company culture. I really focused on like, how do we give everyone a great experience um, working for this company? But also, how do we give people unbridled truth about like, okay, yes, like we can help you with this, but also like you need to straighten up. <laughs> There's just so many things that translated over, you know, both from a skill set and from a passion. You, um, one of my favorite things about you as an HR person is you, you, you don't play in the fluff. Usually uh, HR folks are kind of trained to live in the fluff. In fact, I've gone to these conferences and I'm surprised how little is actually talked about that's, that's worth anything. So what I liked about your approach is you were absolutely for the people, but you also were smart enough to know because you're an entrepreneur yourself that the people part is important. And yes, we have to take care of our employees, but we do have certain asks and things that we need for that from them to succeed for the company to succeed for them to get the things that they want and need and desire. So what, wh- where did that come from? Right? Cause most folks are trained. So, uh, the same that it's, it's very cookie cutter and there's just so much fluff that no one is challenging the employees to be better and be great to, to deserve all the perks that they want, that we want to provide obviously as businesses and should. I think that there are a couple of things that are happening in, in scenarios like that. I think number one, I being a sports fan and understanding winning teams and, and championship teams and the characteristics of those teams, I think help me look at organizations and start thinking about how do we implement the same strategies that, you know, the Chicago Bulls and MJ's era, or, you know, the Lakers, whether that be the Showtime era or the era with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, how do we take those strategies and integrate those from a corporate perspective, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to win. And the difference between sports teams is they have one season to win a championship. And so how do we create that urgency in organizations where we can look at, Hey, we have one year to, to do as much as we can as quickly as possible and as effective as possible to make a meaningful impact and how can we measure what success looks like? So obviously in sports, you have a championship series, but how, how, what does a champ winning a championship look like from a company perspective year over year? And so those, that was the philosophy behind, you know, bringing game day HR into these companies was to integrate, you know, really these like sports philosophies into their companies. So, um, you talked a lot about winning strategies in sports and bringing that into organizations, which is brilliant because I compare everything to sports and it drives my team crazy, but it's so relevant and so easy if you're a sports fan to understand winning and culture and winning culture and all that. Um, so I'd love to know how you're bringing that into organizations because that's extremely unique. You know, one of my favorite people who I've never met, but still is Phil Jackson. I think that what he was able to accomplish, um, in these different dynasties at different points in, in his life with different players. I mean, it's amazing what he was able to do. And I really studied him for a long time. And still today, um, I've read all of his books multiple times, but one of the common themes in those books is you have your set of values. Like here, here are the values of our team. As long as you're living within those values and you're demonstrating those values, everything else is pretty customizable. And so the, the more prominent stories was Dennis Rodman that, you know, he couldn't 
treat Dennis the way he treated all of the other players. Um, and in, in the sense of what motivated, what, what drove Dennis to succeed was vastly different than the rest of the players. And so there was a story where it was, I believe it was the playoffs and Dennis took off to Vegas and for a Which bender. Phil Jackson yeah. allowed. Which he allowed. And people were surprised to find that out. But at the end of the day, Phil knew Rodman enough to determine, like, he really needs to go decompress in order for us to get the type of performance that we need from him to win. So that, like, flexibility in Phil Jackson's philosophies really stood out to me in understanding everyone is different. They all require a different experience because as humans, we're so dynamic and the things that motivate us are going to differ from one another. And so I think the thing that create the winning strategies of a team and sports to translate over to corporations is number one, understanding what winning looks like in the organization Number two, understanding who all of your players are as people and professionals. Number three, creating development tracks so they can continue to develop within their position and expand into advancement in their careers. And then the values, the values have to be aligned. And I'm not talking about pretty words on canvases in an office, but you have to be able to define the values specifically and be able to measure, you know, how players are demonstrating those values. Those to me are the top things that translate easiest from winning, you know, sports teams to organizations. The word alignment is one I'm using so often now everywhere I go, every leadership conference, every conversation with my team, with existing clients, with new clients. It really is just about alignment. Nothing else matters. My career goals don't matter unless you find alignment with what you want and vice versa. Your vision doesn't really matter to me unless my growth aligns with your vision as a company. Um, I guess I have a question for you on on what he did for Rodman, which is very, very unique, especially knowing that he wasn't even a top two or even three player because you had Jordan, you had Pippen, you had Kukoc, right? Um, how do you balance that, playing to people's strengths and, and giving them what they need with what we're all want to be careful with is give what you call uh, favoritism, right? Oh, you know, they love Katrina. That's why she gets these extra days off. Uh, Rodman's a hot mess. So he gets uh, to party in Vegas while we have to sit here and, and uh, do uh, two a days, right? So like, how do you balance those two needs? I believe what made that team so successful is that they didn't think on the individual level. I don't think those players... And if they did question it, it didn't. Ex- they didn't externalize it. But I think those players firmly understood, and they were grounded in: we are going to win a championship this year. I don't care what so and so has to do on their off or personal time. Whatever needs to be done for the mission for the team is going to be done. And that mentality is really what sets them apart from any other team because nobody was thinking about I. Everyone was focused on winning that championship as a team. It doesn't matter who scored the winning shot. It doesn't matter who had the most rebounds. It doesn't matter who practiced more or harder or who got up earlier. None of that mattered. And I think the collective of that in an organization is really important for people to put their own ego aside. I mean, at the end of the day, I think those players ask themselves, like, do I want to go to Vegas and have this like binger like Rodman? And the answer was probably no. Right. And so why would they be jealous of, of that situation? Um, so I think just being really focused on the mission, which is, was something that Phil did so brilliantly, you know, he explained what it was and he constantly just beat that goal in every single person and everything he did and everything he said. And he honored 
those values himself. He led first. They call him the Zen master because of his emotional stability, um, you know, and and I think that people, his players really looked up to him for that. So what's your um, advice to leaders who are running an organization full of winners like the Bulls had and the Lakers had, uh, which he happened to coach both to for a combined, what was it, nine championships? Yeah. Pretty incredible. I think he did six with the Bulls, three with the Lakers. How do we leaders take that message and without being Zen masters, because we're all going to be who we are, uh, how, do we, how do we kind of emulate that um, in our world? I think that you have to be very clear on what the mission is. I know it's, I know we hear this all the time, but your mission has to be relatable. And so your mission can't be, I want to have the best payroll platform in the United States. Like nobody cares. What is the purpose of having this payroll platform? Like you have to keep going and keep, pulling that thread through to really get to the bottom of it. And so personally, you know, for game day HR's mission, it's not, you know, to increase employee engagement. It's not to be the number one, you know, HR firm in the nation. It's none of those things. It's just creating happier workplaces, period. I think companies need to truly understand what their mission is and keep asking themselves these questions. It's not about being the number one, anything it's, it's why even clothing companies, it's not about being, you know, having the highest quality goods. Why are you doing that? What are the feelings? Like, what are the, what's the sentiment behind what you're trying to accomplish? Because if that is the mission, like to just be the number one, you know, clothing brand in the United States, it's going to be really hard to keep people engaged because that is just not meaningful. Then you hit number one, then what do you do? And so I think people want, you have to tie that mission into what people can find purposeful and, you know, being number one, unless there's like a, a real cause behind it, like Tom's, you know, the company Tom's did a tremendous job with what their, their buy one, get one model or buy one, give one, I'm sorry, model. So you buy a pair of shoes. I mean, Tom's are terrible. They're ugly. They're weird. They the, make the shoes. Yes. They're really ugly, but they're, they're comfortable. They make your feet smell. I mean, I've never owned a pair cause I, I didn't, I felt like I'd look like an elf, but their <laughs> model was amazing, right? You felt like every time you spent money, you knew you were providing shoes to someone underserved and that was something you can get behind. I think companies really need to ask themselves this question. Like what is our mission and why is this so important? Beyond Beyond, beyond making money. Yes. Beyond your brand, right? It has to be beyond your own brand name. What is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? Do you know people that actually help companies get this? Because I'm tired of necessarily always being the answer when it comes to the vision. I want my I want my team to set the vision uh, because you're dead on. Whether I want to be 50 million by 2026 20, or 27, I don't know if they necessarily care about that, and I frankly don't don't blame them. Now, of course, we both know that if we get that successful. It's going to create tremendous opportunities for them. And if they're aligned with that, then they're going to grow, which is awesome. But in the meantime, I don't know, like you said, I don't know if it gives people the warm fuzzies to get up in the morning and say, I don't feel great. Um, I don't even care about a promotion or any of that stuff right now, but I have a mission to go uh, do. Like, how do you how do you do that? How do you do it? How do you get the team involved um, in creating the vision and the mission of the organization? Well, I'll ask you, what is... Higher Cloud's mission is to figure out what Higher Cloud's mission is. Well, why do you do what you do? What's the point of it? Because I couldn't play in the NBA, so this was the next <laughs> best thing. <laughs> see, see why we need this, right? I mean, we have we have goals. Obviously, we have a vision of the successful company and what that means to the great people of this organization and all that, and the impact we can have on our customers. But like you said, it's boring. Who cares? And so, I I want my team to be involved in the next one. And who knows, maybe maybe either you or someone you know could could lead the session. Because again, I don't want to necessarily be the one. 
Well, what I would ask you is why is it important that you're placing these individuals into these positions? And then I would ask you, why is it important for these technology or IT firms or companies to have adequate staffing to then move their mission forward? And then I would, you know, I would, I would keep pulling that thread through until we got to what the kind of big ambitious goal is. I know that you do a lot of work with Armenia and, you know, trying to grow their like science and technology economy out there. So there's something there. You're just kind of, I think because you, it comes so natural to you, you don't really see it as like um, a unique, a unique thing. But there's something there, and I'm pretty sure I can probably get to it in like five or ten minutes. Um, With any company that I work with. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy. You know, I had a clothing brand, and like I was telling you, and it was like, you know, we want to create the highest quality of products. Well, why? And I kept kept going with it and asking, why do you want to do that? Then why do you want to do that? And really what we got to was he really wanted – all men to have the ability to have confidence and feel good about themselves. And so through, through that exercise, we were able to figure out, okay, well, how do we get people who are underserved to be able to wear your clothes and feel good about themselves? Is there some type of program that we can launch And so that became meaningful to the employees at that point, because now they understood like why this company needed to succeed because it was so involved with the community. So I can pull the thread pretty much on any kind of business. I mean, give me a strip club and I'll figure it out. (laughs) Why do you start a strip club? Because you want to make an impact. That's right. But why? All types of people need places to go to decompress. (laughs) And eat food. And pay for college. There you go. So let's talk about disengagement. Um, I think it's like the lowest ever, right? Uh, There's some probably some great statistics you have parked in your head. I would love to know more about what, why it's such a big, big issue and what we should do about it. So disengagement is actually the highest it's ever been. Um, and, and any, any study you'll find, it kind of has it ranging from like 64% disengagement to 84% disengagement. Wow. And, um, the last metric or cost that I saw was, it was costing businesses in the U S over $350 billion. So that's obviously like turnover costs, recruiting costs, training costs, lack of productivity you know, um, lawsuits. I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of factors that are contributing to that large number, but it's large and huge as a business owner, you know, first and foremost, I'm like, geez, that's, that's a lot of money. And then I think as a, you know, empath, I'm, I just think, of how many unhappy people there are in the world, um, in our, in our country specifically, because they don't feel like a, a draw to their job. And we, you know, we're spending 30, 40% of our lives working. And I know what it's like to be like a disengaged kind of disgruntled employee and it's miserable. And so I can't imagine all of those people. And it just, it really started to weigh heavily on me to think about that statistic. And so that's kind of where, you know, creating happier workplaces, essentially creating a happier world was birthed for game day HR. You're dead on. You know, it's funny because when I, when I speak to disengaged employee, um, let's say I, I, um, uh, I forget, I forget me. I forget, um, higher cloud. I forget about me, which is used to be very difficult. Now I can disengage very easily about myself. And I'm like, I talk to employees. I'm like, dude, you look miserable. Do you hate it here? And they're like, no, I love this job. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but do you love our, oh yeah, our cloud's amazing. Then why are you so miserable? And, um, and people are surprised that I care. I'm like, forget me, dude, forget me. But if you're unhappy, you shouldn't be here because I agree. I mean, forget that $350 billion of loss on average, three out of four people we have are disengaged and you nailed it. Like again, forget our businesses Dude, that's 75% of the, the working 
population is miserable or, or just not engaged. And, and you're right. In all of my years, I was disengaged one time. I had resigned Kaplan, but I had like a one month left to go and I did nothing. And I was starting to get really frustrated. I, I had to stop myself. Like, why are you unhappy? You basically do whatever you want. You do no work. I'm thinking, oh, because you're disengaged. Uh, and I think it's kind of, it's a sad world to live in. And so how do we now, so what, now what? We know that that's a thing. Um, I'd like to think my team is a lot more engaged than that. Um, but what do you do about that disengagement and how to how to turn turn that on its head? You know, I wish I, I had all of the answers. I think this is going to be a lifelong solve for me personally. But I can say, you know, the first few years of doing this kind of work, I thought maybe it was the company. Um, the company just wasn't understanding, you know, their team. And I do think that that has played a part in it. But what I, what I realized is there's just, a, there's a population where no matter what you did, no matter how much you paid them, no matter what initiatives you had, they were always going to be disengaged. And I realized that it was because of, you know, we can call it like a low level of consciousness. And we really needed to focus on developing those people as individuals. And so I, I, I realized in the last couple of years, you know, that companies have a really great opportunity to be the one to provide these types of tools to their employees because, you know, you kind, you, you, you'll have your winners, let's just say, who are very proactive about reading the books and taking the courses and listening to the podcasts and meditating and exercising and all of these different, you know, ways that, that help us grow spiritually, physically, mentally, um, and consciously. Well, what about all the people who aren't doing that and how do you access them? Well, you make it a part of their job and you carve out time. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if they're disengaged, they're not working eight hours (laughs) anyway, (laughs) So you might as well carve out some of that time and have them read the books and, you know, go drink ayahuasca. I don't know. I mean, there really are no limits to what we can do as an organization to kind of shepherd, you know, the development and, and the consciousness of the world at large or, or you know, at least our, our company at large. And so I think that it's going to be a convergence of both, you know, companies truly understanding what do their employees want, who are they, and using that data and putting the vehicles out there to understand that data, plus changing the perspective, the the level of consciousness and development of their professionals. Now, do I have this philosophy that like all people are can be A players? Probably not. And so we have to be realistic as a company to understand, like, we don't need a company full of really ambitious people either. We kind of want the people that are going to be like the bookkeeper for 20 years. Role players. Yes, the role players. Every sports team have role players. You can't have all superstars. I agree. What's in it for us? What's in it for us as organizations? Us meaning, it sounds great, right? But most disengaged folks... Assuming you've done your part as an employer, take good care of them. You've given a mission, a vision, values. You pay them well. You take care of them, but they're still disengaged. The obvious thing is go be disengaged somewhere else, right? Obviously, if we've gotten to know these people, a lot of times they're quality humans, but they don't do quality work. So what's in it for the organizations to to put themselves through all of this effort, uh, both mentally, physically, emotionally, and financially to, you know, weather the storm, weather the storm with folks that are disengaged. What is the end result that we're looking for? Besides being great human and being a great leader, which I take very, very, very seriously, what are other reasons why we should even care about this concept? Well, for one, we're losing a ton of money not caring about it. And Number two, I agree, like you can't win them all over. Um, some of them, you know, are just on a, on a completely wrong career path, right? They, they think they thought they wanted to do something because so-and-so, their parents, whoever said they'd be good at it. And so they're just on the wrong path. So it doesn't matter. But we can also help facilitate that. I always 
when I first started consulting, I kid you not, most of my engagements were companies just hiring me to go fire their employees, period. I'd like drive to San Diego. I'd drive wherever they needed me to go. They were afraid to fire the employee and I would just go and do it. It was like the nickname, the, the, term, Terminator. the Terminator was, <laughs> was definitely coming up. And the reason why I was so successful at it, I believe, is because I just had a conversation with them. And I really just knew, like, this isn't where you want to be. What do you want to do? And so they left feeling hopeful. They didn't leave, you know, feeling like they got fired. They left feeling like a new opportunity was coming for them. And so sometimes companies have to be very disciplined in being able to have those conversations as well. That's why I really love individual development plans because if you think people are just going to stay with you and grow with you, you know, for the lifetime of their career, then you're being naive also. But if somebody is like, I can give you three years here. But at some point, I want to go start my own business. Why wouldn't we help them do that? Why wouldn't we give them the tools that they need in order to go do that? Because if they, they're going to leave us one day, that's fine. But who do you think they're going to refer to their family and friends to come work for? Or who do you think they're going to refer customers to? You know, I, I mean, at the end of the day, we can... We can choose to be upset that they don't want to spend the lifetime with us or we can help them create a life that they love. And I just, I choose and, and, you know, the clients I work with choose to do the latter because what's the point of being angry all the time and feeling like we're losing money? If I can get three good years out of someone and they're engaged the entire three years because they know if they stay engaged like I will teach them how to go run a business. Sounds like both people win, both sides win. Mm-hmm, exactly. Let's let's actually talk about that because you you I believe you uh, you have a kind of a case study on employee engagement and net profit because that's business owners. That's a lot of times what they're thinking about. The case study. I'll kind of walk you through the the workflow of it. Um, so you start with obviously benchmarking what the net profit is. Um, and then you benchmark what the engagement rate is for the organization. Um, and so the three questions that we really focus on in engagement is how satisfied are you with your job working for your company? How likely is it you will refer family and friends to come work for our organization? And if offered the same position for more money elsewhere, would you take it? So based off of those three questions is how we determine what the ENPS score is for engagement. NPS plus the E, e right? Yep, the for that's engagement. Right. So it goes from negative 100 all the way to 100. And, you know, if you're like above zero, you're fine. If you're above 30, that's pretty good, actually. Then what we do is we put initiatives in place. And some of the initiatives can be very light lifts, you know, if, if the data came back that the employees felt like they have no idea what's going on from the top, an initiative could be just the executives, the CEO, the founder, whoever sending a weekly email out to everyone, just explaining like what the happenings are. Um, maybe it's recognition. Recognition initiatives are pretty easy to implement, in my opinion, um, whether it's anniversary recognition, birthday, a good sur- a good survey, you know, customer survey came back, whatever that looks like, that's pretty easy. My point is there are very easy things that you can do that can raise that engagement pretty quickly. Sometimes just having the um, employee survey by in and of itself actually raises the engagement percentage because employees feel like they got it out. They, they feel like Mm -hmm. they, they got to say what they wanted to say that they're being heard. And, and each little thing you do from there increases the engagement. So not just having the survey, but then presenting the results to the entire company. And like, here's what we do really well. Here are the things that you said, you know, we need some improvement on. 
boom, another bump in engagement. So just even doing the exercises, employee, the sentiment from employees, the studies have shown increases it all by itself. We did um, our uh, Brenda and Melanie uh, on my executive team. They did this incredible thing uh, they implemented, which was the one was the uh, first day interviews or first week because uh, the interviews themselves are a show. They're marketing themselves or marketing ourselves. And hopefully there's some real uh, getting to know each other. But once they work here, they do an interview of this individual. And then a few months later, they do stay interviews. And then, of course, uh, they do exit interviews. But what we found is the things that we got during the preliminary interviews before they were hired and what they said sometimes was a lot more clear when they were already in the door. And just to understand what they needed and what they wanted was so easy to, to give them. I'm assuming it could be organic things like that because we do all the great recognition. We're very transparent. I mean, to a point where I will literally do like um, during a, a kickoff meeting, I'll just ask anybody what questions they have for me. Just straightforward. And some of the answers are great. Some of them aren't great. But the point is it's transparency. What are other things we can do beyond the recognition, uh, the, the ideas that uh, that we implemented, which has been really great? Uh, what, else, what else are good ideas? It depends on what the data says. I, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to be like every other LinkedIn, you know, culture influencer and say like, you have to be doing all of these things because you really don't know until the data comes in because every company has a different set of needs based off the demographic of their employees. So I, you know, I give, I give some examples. I mean, one of them, another, I could just tell you from former clients, um, you know, one of them was being able to gift, like having a budget to get, to send gifts to their direct reports was like a big one. Having a budget to meet in person on a quarterly basis was important. Um, in benefits, um, you know, just not necessarily increasing the contribution from the employer side, but but employees wanted to have access to ancillary um, benefits like short term, you know, disability, long term, even if they were OK paying for it. Um, so that actually wasn't a, li- a financial lift at all for the employer themselves. So the, you really have to have the data. I kind of follow like a four phase system when we go into companies. The first one is always auditing. Like I need to know Mm -hmm. what's happening in the organization from compliance. You know, are you all out of survival mode? Are you getting hit with lawsuits all the time? I mean, these are things that I really want to know and understand. And we need to make sure first and foremost that you're compliant with like HR and employment law. Um, The second thing we do is like the climate survey. This is where we're kind of benchmarking all of the employee data on how they feel about working for the organization, how they feel about their position and the tools that they have to succeed. We use all that data. We create those initiatives. Then the third portion is exceeding OKRs. And so now we're looking at performance. Like, is it very clear what the company expects from each individual? So it's not about completing tasks, but like, why are you doing those things? What are, what is the measurable objective that that position needs to be able to achieve? And the example that I give most is a social media coordinator. And the task is that, you know, you have to post on our company page every day. Well, why? Well, because we want to increase brand awareness. That's the objective then. And that's what really this person needs to be focused on, not so posting on social media every day, but increasing brand awareness. Maybe that's not every day. Maybe it's three times a week and it's longer form content, but you give them the autonomy to, to decide and discern how they're going to achieve that objective. And so really what we do is we go down, we whittle down all of these job descriptions that have like 20 to 30 different tasks on there. And we whittle it down to like three to five objectives, like OKRs. Then we stick KPIs to them, right? We stick KPI, quarterly KPIs. And every week that department should be discussing where they are in those KPIs. So it shouldn't be some type of surprise when the performance reviews are going on and, and the employee has no clue 
what they're going to, what type of review they're going to receive. They should know week to week. And so that's a, that's something that we do. That's phase three is what I call it. And then phase four is the D and ACE is development. Um, And so that's when we start looking at individual development plans and truly understanding what are like the personal and career goals of this person and what do I need to do to ensure that this person is, is doing those things. At the end of the day, the employee, the direct report owns the development. So I'll, I can do a development with you, but if you're not working on that, that's kind of on you. But again, the sentiment is even if Avidis isn't doing the things that he needs to do in order to advance his career, the fact that he knows that he can is positive sentiment enough for engagement. So, so ACE is what I call it because, you know, volleyball, tennis, it's sports related, but the ACE system is, is really what we use when we go into these organizations and, and increase employee engagement. What, what I love about these things is they're so easy to implement. Uh, I actually agree, right? Because the rest of the stuff, some of us companies just can't compete with. We can't compete with massive restricted stock units or unlimited time off or, or, you know, whatever it is, those are very difficult to, to do assurance across everybody in your family, hundred percent paid for those kind of things are, are more challenging because they're real, uh, you know, very, very challenging to implement across an organization. That's not quite large yet, but these things anyone can do. In fact, I feel like smaller organizations can do it faster and get a bigger impact out of it. Uh, and usually smaller companies genuinely believe in their people. So it's even easier to do it because you can get to know every single person within within a week or two. So this is great. Love it. What was the E for, by the way? Exceeding OKRs. What if, what if the individual's goals are are nice, but they're not aligned with the company's goals. How do you deal with that? So as the supervisor, you know, that's part of the individual development plan process is you do have to make sure that those goals are aligned with the company goals. So even if, again, I'm bringing back the example of if somebody is like, well, in three years, I don't really want to be here. Well, you still have to like do your job in the three years and, and you should do it and you, and, and you should be motivated to do it because I am going to give you all the tools that you need to go do what you want to do next. But in the meantime, your short-term goals have to be aligned with the company goals right now. And that's something that I actually find very fragmented in the startup world is it's not clear what the OKRs are. And, you know, you've been a startup and I've been a startup so I, I understand it. It's like the, you, you try to be everything to everyone all the time. Um, and all the metrics matter. And so, which means none of them ends up mattering because you, you, you end up not achieving any of them. And so, you know, I have a, I have a client right now who, um, is very big in the men's jewelry space. Um, and that was like something that we we started working on was, Hey, your, your company, OKRs are are not aligned with the department OKRs. Like we need to, pull, again, pull the thread through so they're all aligned because it's very confusing on whether you're su- being successful in your position or not. And so that's something that we try to do immediately when we come in. But you're right, the smaller the company, the easier that tends to be. I'm actually quite shocked sometimes about how big companies get when they haven't like done this accurately. I'm like, how did you make money? Me too. <laughs> how are you in business? Yeah. But I mean, again, they're just, if you look at their net profit, it's usually not good um, because they're just, they're making $50 million, but they're spending $49 million. What if you discover mutually, you discover that this individual is not a great fit for your organization. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of uh, leaders are scared. That's why they hired you, the Terminator, to fire their people, which I think it's a little cowardly, right? Um, you hired these people, you should fire them. Um, but w- I'm in the belief that if someone's not a fit, you need to help them move on, right? Because they're going to do better somewhere else. They're not failing because they're terrible people or you're a terrible company. They're failing because there's a misalignment. What do you recommend to folks that are either too nice and they're afraid of the consequence or they're just scared of the consequences of firing someone um, 
how do you deal with that? How did, how did they feel good about themselves and take care of their employees, but do what the business needs, which is to sometimes move on from these employees? How do you deal with that? I can tell you from personal experience, you know, when I speak to clients and they come to me and they say, hey, this person isn't working out. My first question to them is, okay, we let this person go. We had, you know, what did you learn from that recruiting process or from that tenure? Like, what did you learn? Because you can't sit here and tell me that it was a bad hire. I really don't like that term because it, it really just says that they're just bad people. And it, and what it does is it takes the responsibility from the employer, which I think in my opinion, the, the employer is fully responsible for the hiring decisions if, you know, if I hear an employer say things like, um, well, they sold me in the interview. It's like the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. I'm like, you got, that's your fault, you know, for not asking the right questions and understanding what their past, you know, success or proven success was. You just took everything at face value. That's your fault. So number one, move away from this terminology of like a bad hire and take accountability for the decisions that you made for hiring. And maybe you weren't clear on what this position was going to be. Maybe you weren't clear on what you actually needed. A lot of startups, as you've probably experienced, they're hiring the position for the first time. And so they're not clear on what that person's should actually be doing. And this is why I suggest having those OKRs um, done before you even hire for that position, before you even start recruiting, you should have that position plan in place. And so taking account accountability would be number one. And then number two, making that, you know, I always, I still live by the term, um, hire slow, fire fast. Um, and so anytime that I was kind of in a position where I had to terminate someone personally, if I felt like this tug or this like anxiety or nervousness to me, I interpret it as I did something wrong here. Like, what did I not do? Did I not give them the proper tools? Did I not, you know, interview them properly? Like usually that anxiety comes because you know, you're responsible for this situation. Well, as leaders, we're always responsible. It's always right. our fault, whether we're head of a household or we're leaders in a company or even a department, it's our fault. So I think you're right. If we can take that upon us, it's so much easier because if I can control me, I can control my organization. And they usually say the fish stinks from the head. So if your organization is a mess, you're, you're probably the, you're, you're, you're the mess. I was, um, I was doing a training for my, uh, my company and I was like, I had some feedback from an outside consultant. He's like, Hey, you know, people don't really prepare for their interviews. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, well, they show up and they ask questions. They're just like, Hey man, what's, what's this company do? And, and I was like, that's my fault. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm like, dude, that's my fault. And then I, I called my team and I said, this is what's happening, but it's 100% my fault. And they were like, what do you mean? I said, this is my MO. I show up to podcasts without reading the questions. Um, I show up to interviews because I'm so confident in my ability to understand you that I don't have to do preparation. It's not necessarily a good thing, right? And it's just, that's, that's kind of where it, it's gotten me and my organization to here to get to the next level. We have to change the game. So now we're like, no, we must prepare for 15 minutes before every single interview we do, uh, especially if it's external, um, just so that we show up and we're extremely thoughtful in our interviews versus kind of random, like, oh, tell me about yourself. Now we have an interview process and it's phenomenal. That's not the part, but we, we ask questions we should have already known. Right. Exactly. And, and it's my fault. It is. So taking accountability is number one. And, and, and it's a very powerful stance to be at. You know, I tell people this all the time, believing that it's not your fault is very powerless because then you're putting it on everybody else, which means you have no control. Taking accountability Correct. is powerful because now you can decide what's going to happen next. So taking accountability is number one. And then you know, number two, I would say, like, you have to be very clear in the conversation about your accountability. And so I was coaching 
a client recently and I told him like, you need, because he actually, you know, he said she's a good human. She works really hard, but I think I underestimated like what this, the type, the level of experience this, this position needed. I said, great, go tell her that. (laughs) Wow. And, and make sure it's not about her and take full responsibility for it, you know? Um, and that just makes less nervousness and it makes the conversation go so much easier. I mean, another thing that I would say is if this termination conversation is the first time you're having this type of conversation with them, that is your error. By the time I terminate an employee, they know it's coming. They're like, what took you so long? They know. Yeah. So, so I always, I actually even say, go to as far as saying, I don't terminate people. They terminate themselves. And so I know like, like if they don't know already, again, it's your error. That means that you have not been having consistent conversations with them when they have been underperforming, which, you know, to me, makes me feel like, did you really give them opportunities to correct their behavior if you never told them that they weren't performing well to begin with. So accountability, making sure you're having conversations with them as soon as something happens, like as soon as a, a, a policy is violated, as soon as a you know customer, whatever that, whatever position you're in, you need to have that conversation right away. So that way, when that termination conversation comes up, you're ready to go. Everybody understands what's going to happen and there's no anxiety about it. Nice. Okay. So one last question for you. Um, well, first of all, how do people reach you? And then we'll, we'll have some fun. How do people reach you to get something like this going? Cause it's extremely worthwhile. I don't know if you have statistics, but I assume you can improve your net profits, your EBITDA times X. If you, if you get your culture right long-term, has to be sustainable. How does someone reach you to be able to do that? Right now, the case study we're doing is is in the retail um, chain space. The next, you know, my next goal is to do it in the professional sports um, space. And so, you know, as as we're getting these engagements, um, I typically, you know, will negotiate, you know, whether I can share the information or not. Um, but right now, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Katrina Gazarian. It's I'm pretty sure I'm the only one on there with that name. Um, this week I actually released all of my courses, um, all of my templates. There's, there's everything from like HR compliance all the way up, you know, to attracting top talent to fill positions faster, becoming an interview, you know, a professional interviewer, all of it is free. And they're typically the prices. What? Yeah, the prices up until this point were like $200 to $2,000. And I just opened up the entire school for free. Um, and we've actually already have about 100 people that enrolled in it this week. And so, I mean, if you really want like a crash course in what I do, go consume all of that content that I have there. Um, it was just something, I don't know why I just felt compelled. I felt like if I was truly you know, committed to solving the issue of employee disengagement, then I need to make everything more accessible um, for people to consume. And so that was really the driving force behind making everything free. Once in a while, I'll get on LinkedIn and and post a little something here and there. Um, I've kind of gotten off the social media uh, wheel. Um, I deleted my Instagram and my Facebook and all of that. So Smart. LinkedIn is really the only place you can find me. And I'm always happy to, to chat with people and talk to people, and engage with people in person or on the phone as well. Guys, talk about put your money where your mouth is. You wanted to solve engagement for the sake of you know hu- humanity and you, you did it. You give it a fr- for free. So we, we're, we're going to go grab those those courses. And I think that'd be very helpful. One last question for you. What's one thing leaders do that drive you crazy? Oh, I have to pick one. Give us three if you have that many. Okay. One thing, punctuality drives me crazy in leadership. So the fact that leaders think they can show up late to like Zoom meetings, um, just like not being an example altogether um, because they feel like their time is more important. 
Um, that's like a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, it, it's a huge integrity, integrity piece, which brings me to the second thing that drives me nuts is when you say you're going to do something by a certain time, you need to do it. I, even if it's doing the dishes at home, I mean, you really got to learn how to live within that integrity of your word, because if you don't have that, especially like in this hybrid remote world, you don't really have much. So those are probably the two biggest things that I'm like, I will, I will disengage this contract tomorrow if this doesn't get fixed. I love that. <laughs> well, listen, I don't think anyone's ever talked about HR for an hour and not fallen asleep on either side. And so you've done an incredible <laughs> job. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I think you're awesome. And I know people could get a lot of value out of listening to you and taking your courses and maybe hiring you to, to fix their uh, mess of a home, right? Thank you so much. It's not about us. It's about all the incredible people that, that are looking for great leadership from us. So it's incredibly important. Thank you for considering me and I get to follow you know, Rex Kamalian, which is super cool. He's awesome. And I'll introduce you guys next time we see each other. Thank you for coming on. You're the best. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next Wednesday at 6 a.m. for more insights on how to level up as a tech leader. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on the podcast platform you're listening on. Share this episode with a tech leader you love, and we'll see you next week.